Turn with me to Mark chapter 2, actually. If you turn to Mark 2, you'll get to where you need to be. Mark chapter 2. I've got to say, I love that song. Thank you for leading us in that. What a joy it is to sing of, of Christ and Christ alone meeting our need. Hopefully that will come out through the text today. Mark, well, specifically, we'll be looking at 140 to 212. Mark 140 to 212. Let me read this for us. Please read along in your own Bibles. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Question for you this morning. What are the greatest problems facing our world today? What do you think? Now, your answers here can range all the way from the superficial to the spiritual, okay? Just try to think of a few of the top problems. Now, on the superficial end of things, we certainly have our first world problems, do we not? Uh, How many of you have ever heard that category, first world problems? (laughs) 
first world problems are things that are unique to us in affluent societies. Things like um, not being able to open a bag of chips because your fingers are too greasy from the previous bag of chips that you've already eaten. That's a first world problem. People in other countries don't have to worry about that. Uh, Another would be like your laptop is dying, but your charger is upstairs and you don't feel like going to go get it. I mean, that's, that's a problem, but it's just a first world problem. Or, how many times have you ever said this? I'm just, I'm so tired of eating at all the restaurants near my work. You just wish that you had a little more variety. That's a problem that most people don't face, but we here in the first world actually do. Or, uh, this one happens quite often. You've had too much food for lunch and you're tired around 2 or 3 o'clock every day. Isn't that frustrating? That's a first world, superficial problem. Not a big deal. Or, you cracked your iPhone screen. Or, you have to choose the language on the ATM machine. Why is that? You know I'm English. My cards, I mean, these are first world problems. They're superficial. They're light. They're trivial. They're social problems. Maybe that was what yours consisted of. I mean, we have things like in all seriousness, world hunger, and there's racial disunity, and we have economic Stability, there's peace in the Middle East, you've got ISIS or ISIL, and then you've got the eradication of disease. These are huge problems. And then some may have taken a more spiritual route in their answer to this question. In fact, I found that there is one uh, center called the Spiritual Research Foundation that has devoted their entire organization to convincing people that the main problems that we experience in life are indeed spiritual. But it's interesting, though. It's not what you would think. The, the Spiritual Research Foundation would have us believe that like depression, for example, isn't the problem. The real problem is um, ancestral spirits who are bothering us because they passed away. It's a spiritual problem. Or actually, this same foundation would claim that chest pain is not a cardiological problem, but it comes from a block of spiritual energy. Or financial difficulty doesn't come from you spending more money than you make. But to them, financial difficulties come from distressing energies, a bad chi. Now, of fatal accidents, by the way, they also just attributed to destiny. Destiny is just the problem. It's not that somebody was being unsafe. It's because destiny prescribed as such. Maybe your problems were psychological. But let me be honest with you about the question. It's a little too hard. How in the world are we in here supposed to assess meaningfully the problems of the entire world? So let me ask the question again, but this time I'm going to narrow it. Let's, uh, let's think about the problems, the greatest problems facing your neighborhood, your family. How about this? This church, your business or your school, wherever you go. Now, again, the answers here are still too broad. I mean, what are, what are the biggest things that are facing us all? Is there anything common to all of these things that we have experience with, we know, they're in our realm of experience? I still think it's a little too broad. Let's make it more personal. Let me ask you this. What is the greatest problem in your life right now? Not what's the world's greatest problem? What's your neighborhood's greatest problem? What is your greatest problem? What one thing, if changed, would revolutionize everything else in your life? Do you have something in your mind? Can you think of it? Maybe even write it down? 
What, what I'd like you to do is, is hold that thought and see if how God's see if God's word may inform your final answer. So what I'm allowing you to do here is to, to provide a tentative answer, but I, I want to challenge you that this text will actually point out and it may correct your answer in some way. You need to remember what's going on in the book of Mark, right? I mean, right at the very beginning of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says that I am going to present to you the good news. Not just a bit of good news, but the good news. The good news par excellence. The good news that will change everything else. Good news that would change the world. And so we saw as we made our way through verses 1 through 13 that this good news is the fact that Jesus was and is the divine Messiah. And that was proven by the ministry of John the Baptist. That was the prophecy of the Old Testament to now. And then we saw that it was validated by the Father. And then it was validated by the empowering of the Spirit. And so we know that Jesus is going to be this good news. And then in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, we even had this review of what He was coming to do. He was coming in effect to announce and to change or make possible God's people's entrance into the kingdom. And what I like about what Mark does is he doesn't just present Jesus as one who talks the talk, but he also presents him as one who walks the walk. He doesn't just say that we're going to change your life, the kingdom is here, but he proves that in him there is the kingdom, and where he is, he exercises authority over what seemed to be the most pressing needs of the day. We saw that last week. Right? He exercises authority over the realm of mankind and demons and darkness and disease. I mean, this is a powerful one. Yet today we come to two more stories that could seem very similar to what we just saw last week, but so different. The accounts of both the cleansing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic here begin to point to the deeper issue that makes the good news the good news. The text will highlight that there is a problem greater than disease or or disability. And it's going to show us that Jesus has the authority not only to fix the evident problems, but the deeper problems as well. The problem of sin. So Mark shares this account of Jesus remedying sin, and he presents Jesus as the solution to our sin problem, specifically showing two abilities of Jesus that solve our sin problem. That's what we're going to see here today. I want you to see if you can notice it in the text as we go back through it. Two abilities of Jesus that show that He alone can solve our sin problem. Here's the first ability. Jesus is able to cleanse our contamination. Jesus is able to cleanse our contamination. You see that very plainly in verses 40 through 45 of chapter 1. Look at the text again. See if you can see this on your own. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now let me stop here. You need to see as you're reading through this text and just really understand is that there's a close relationship between this leper's physical situation, and the religious situation that underscore Jesus' ability to cleanse men of the contamination of sin. 
Now, I want you to understand something at the outset. I'm not going to spiritualize this text and say, oh, well, leprosy is a picture of sin and Jesus can cleanse sin. Even though that is true. But I want you to know that built into the text, the original audience would have understood that there is a spiritual dynamic to the problem presented here in Mark 1, verses 40 through 45. And you can't understand that unless you understand leprosy. I know some of you have grown up in church, some of you have not. So let me just give you a brief review of what a leper is or was. It was, first of all, it was a physical disease, for sure. It represented basically any disease which interrupted the God-given division between the inside and the outside of the body, the skin. Now, again, it was a disease that would interrupt the division between the inside and the outside of the body. So just because you have, like, eczema, for example, that wasn't leprosy. But anything that would cause the fluids from the inside of the body to secrete to the outside of the body or anything that would expose the inside of the body from the outside of the body is leprosy. Not to be confused, by the way, with Hansen's disease, which is what most preachers will preach. Oh, Hansen's disease, you know, limbs falling off and that kind of thing. Uh, That was known in that world, but that wasn't the exclusive uh, expression of leprosy. When you read the description of leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14, it doesn't describe modern-day Hansen's disease, although it could include it. Now, that being said, it is a skin disease... It is a serious one because it exposes the inside to the outside. And it was looked upon pretty unfavorably. In fact, it said in 2 Kings 5 verse 7 that it was practically incurable. It was on par with raising the dead. Remember when Naaman the leper goes and he wants the king to heal him? He's hoping that this Israelite king will be able to make him clean. And he says, who could do this? I, I can't do this. This is basically like raising the dead. It wasn't something that could be simply cured with an antibiotic. Josephus, the historian at that age, he wrote that lepers were, in effect, dead persons walking. That's a horrible description. So it was a physical disease, but it was also a religious disease. By that I mean Leviticus 13 and 14 that I've referenced already. I would encourage you to go back and read it at some other time. said that this disease in particular revealed... That one was unclean before God. So for example, you could in the Old Testament get a cold, but it wouldn't affect your nearness to God. This particular disease, believe it or not, would actually make one more distant from God than normal. Now there are many such instances of this. They were regular occurrences of life that would just sometimes remind people that they were especially other than God. It doesn't mean that they're in sin. It's again, just certain diseases reminded the Old Testament saints that God was whole, He was complete. That's what the term holy literally means. And that they were lacking. And that they weren't on the same playing field, if you were. They they weren't just contemporaries. They weren't buddies. There were certain things that would come into life, leprosy being one of them, that just reminded them that God was clean and holy and they were unclean. So there was a religious dynamic. It made them especially distant from God, more so than normal. And then there was a social aspect to this disease as well. Physical, religious, and social. Socially, this disease required its victims to live outside the normal home in a special dwelling on the outskirts of the city. 
And part of this was because of the contagious nature of the disease in some cases, but most of all because of the contaminating significance of the disease. Listen to Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has that disease. He is unclean. And listen to this description. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It's sad. It is said that in Jewish culture during this time, they would even hold funerals for people who were declared lifetime lepers. Could you imagine kissing your wife and children goodbye simply because you contracted a disease, never to see them again? Notice where Jesus is at this point, by the way, geographically. Remember last week? He was in the desolate places. He was alone. He wanted to get away from the crowds. And what did he do? He left Capernaum because it was too crowded. Jesus is on the outskirts of society right now, presumably by one of these leper colonies. It was a social dynamic to this disease. So his position, his position is grave. But I want you to see that the gravity of his condition is matched by the intensity of his approach. Look at the second half of verse 40. It says particularly that he came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me. You see that. Notice the actions that it presents here. They're all in present tense in the original language. Even though it says came, past tense, in ours. The way that Mark says this in the original is extremely vivid. It's almost like if I were to retell a story to you of something that had happened in my life and say, hey, hey, look, I want you to see what happened to me. No, he, said, he was saying this, and then this happened, and then this happened. That's kind of the the intensity that's here. He wants you to notice. He wants you to see and draw your attention to the fact that this man is in a desperate state. He is begging. He is on his knees. I mean, it is continual action. He is repeatedly asking over and over and over again for Jesus to provide this healing. But he doesn't ask for healing. Look at the text. What does he ask for? He says that you will make me what? Clean. Clean. In faith, the leper is expressing a desire to be clean. Now, here's the question. Why would he ask to be clean as opposed to just being cured or made whole? I mean, this word, as it was used throughout the Gospel, certainly includes curing leprosy. That part's clear. But here's something that you may not have known, this word never refers to a cure of any other kind. No one is made clean of paralysis. No one is made clean of a demon. Here he has to be made clean. This, under, I mean, this word underscores that this man understood that his problem was more than physical. Remember, I said that there was a physical and a religious dynamic to the disease of leprosy. And you know what this man is concerned about? The religious. He is unclean before God and he wants to be clean before God. He has been contaminated by sin in such a way that it has not only distanced him from God and he cannot participate in normal synagogue worship, but it has also distanced him from the people that he loves. That's what sin does. 
And so this disease has done that, and so this man comes and saying, look, don't just make me better. Restore me into full fellowship with Yahweh and His people. I want to be clean. Not impure. And how does Jesus respond? Predictably, you, you can see this from our Lord. It says in verse 41 that He was moved with pity. It's a compassionate cleansing. He's moved with pity and he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. I love this. In contrast to the the Greek and Roman gods of that day and some of the Old Testament perceptions of Yahweh as someone who was distant and far off, we see Jesus, the divine Messiah, being presented as someone who speaks tenderly and who has compassion and someone who is emotionally moved by the results of the fall. And what's interesting to me, though, is that Mark will then point out, rather redundantly, that Jesus not only was moved, but it says He stretched out His hand and touched Him. He uses two phrases, both of which talk about touching, to emphasize the fact that Jesus actually touched this guy. Now, again, the disease is potentially contagious. There's no way to know. But let me tell you what is contagious without any shadow of a doubt. The fact that whoever touched this man would be made unclean themselves. I mean, that's what Leviticus 11 verses 24 to 40 makes very clear. You touch something that's unclean, then you become unclean. And here Jesus, He does it. The Bible even states it very plainly, very literally. He touched a leper with His hand. He didn't just touch him, He did it with His hand. And what happened? Would Jesus be contaminated here? Or would He cleanse? Verse 42 answers that. And immediately the leprosy left Him and He was made clean. One author put it this way, the touch which should have made Jesus unclean or contaminated, in fact, worked the opposite direction. And I love the picture here because the verb says that He was made clean, but the idea is that it's something that you could see vanish. It was almost like this white scales were on His skin just disappeared immediately. Soon as Jesus touched him, it was instantaneous healing of an incurable disease. That's how Jesus operated. Instantaneous. It was effective. And it was done on an incurable disease. And I can't help but think of the phrase that I used to hear as a kid, one rotten apple spoils the bunch. You ever heard that? It's just kind of a biological reality, is it not? Death and decay tend to spread from dead things to living things and pollute them. You don't throw good apples and a bunch of rotten apples and hope that the whole thing gets better. And yet, in some strange way, our Lord here is that good apple that made everything else whole and complete. This is a power that they've never been able to see before. And I want you to capture the significance of what's going on here. This is not just another healing, okay? I'm telling you that this one's different. This one is directly tied to one's access to God. Anybody reading the text, whether they be Roman or Jewish, would have understood what it meant to be unclean before God or the gods. And yet Jesus here, in a simple touch, restores one and makes him clean before God. Now realistically, all disease is proof of the curse of sin. But this disease, particularly, was an even more stark reminder of how sin separates us from a holy and pure God. And it's this disease that Jesus in this situation heals. And this is further reinforced by what Jesus does next. Look at verse 43. 
And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now listen, this is strange. Jesus immediately commands this guy, and he specifically gives him two commands. The first one is, don't talk to anyone. And the second one is, give an offering to the priest. Now here's a question I would ask, why? Why? Why not tell the people this good news? Why would, listen to this, why would he undertake the eight-day process of preparing an offering and taking it to the priest in Jerusalem, so that doesn't even include the travel time, if he was already healed? I think there's three reasons. First of all, when he says don't talk, basically, we saw this last week, Jesus is trying to manage the crowds, right? You remember what he came to do? He came to preach. He came to meet spiritual needs. And the more public that it would become that he was meeting physical needs, the greater the crowd would be just to get the physical benefit. So he's trying to do some crowd control here, but there's more than that. Jesus also, through these commands, is showing respect for the Old Testament law. Although he was greater than the law, he was not in opposition to the law. You understand that? Although Jesus was greater than the law, he was not in opposition to the law. Makes me think of a state trooper. Now, if someone is a highway patrolman or a state trooper, they certainly have the authority and the right to exceed the speed limit. But they only do so when needed. They have an authority, a different kind of authority than what you and I have, as much as we would want that authority for ourselves. Jesus is that here. He is showing that he is greater than the law, but still has a respect for the law. And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, Jesus commands this because he wanted to signal to the priests of Israel that the true priest of Israel had arrived. You know what the priests did? If, if someone had somehow, by some means, had gotten rid of this leprosy, it was their job to simply inspect. They couldn't make anybody clean. They could only recognize whether or not someone was clean. That was their job. That was what they did. And so this supposedly uncurable disease, they send him to the priest, and then all of a sudden, it's going to be their job to understand, like, what happened to you? Now again, he's not supposed to talk to the people, but he is supposed to go to the priest. And what's he going to tell the priest? Jesus touched me. And instead of Jesus being defiled, it, it made you whole? This is something far different. This is the difference between the statistician and the athlete. The athlete's the one who gets the job done. The statistician's guy just writes about it. This is the difference between the art critic and the artist. It's easy to sit there and say, oh, well, I could have done that. It's one thing else to do it. It's the difference between the inspector and the builder. It's, I mean, it's one thing to be able to say, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, but it's something else entirely to actually build the building. And Jesus was the reality. He was not just the symbol. He was showing that the true priest was here. He did not just recognize God's work. He accomplished God's work. And that is the point of this particular healing miracle. Someone was on the scene who could fix the sin problem. Can I zoom out for a moment? Let's, let's zoom out of Mark just for a second. Let's zoom out of the New Testament for a moment. Let's, I, want, I want you to expand your horizon from Genesis to Revelation for a moment. And think about this problem. 
I mean, we had at creation, we had purity and intimacy with God. God looked at us as clean. We had fellowship with Him. We were close to Him. He walked with humanity in the cool of the garden. At the end of the day, there was sweet oneness. And then the fall comes. And what immediately happens, impurity invades. And then shame. And there's a lack of intimacy with God. And so much so that not only does God remove man from the garden, but even before that happens, man himself removes himself from God. Hiding in the bushes. That's what sin does. It's broken the fellowship. It's made us contaminated. And now everyone that's been born since has been born with this curse of sin. Naturally distant from God. When we were originally created to be close to God and one with Him. But we saw these pictures all through the Old Testament. Think with me now. Remember? The sacrifices pointed to it. This hope that that people could be clean. That they could be close to God. The people prayed for it. You see uh, David praying this in Psalm 51. Make me clean. Prophets promised it in Isaiah 1.18. Remember this verse? Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they should be white as wool. This was promised that there would be this time coming in which you could be clean before God. And we see here in this story that finally, one had come who could fix this problem. Jesus accomplished this for us. That's why Hebrews 9 verses 13 to 14 says it this way, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And what's our response to this? We just depend on Jesus for it. This is good news. Can I ask you a question? Very personal. Don't answer this one out loud. You ever just feel dirty? Unclean before God? Have you ever had that feeling before where you just feel guilty and ashamed? For something that, that you've done or maybe that you are doing? Typically what happens in those situations when those times come in our life, what do we do? We, we withdraw ourselves from other people. So we're ashamed. We withdraw ourselves from anything religious or God. We retreat. You know, those situations actually remind me of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Maybe you remember that from high school where there's actually a murder that takes place. Macbeth and her husband kill the king, Duncan. And they feel guilty for, for what they've done because they wanted to rule and Lady Macbeth begins to go crazy because this, her conscience is just eating away at her all the time. And she wakes up in the middle of the night and she tries to wash her hands of the blood and yet it just never comes off. Even though she was told a little water clears us of this deed, the water never worked. And eventually they're driven mad by the guilt of their own conscience. I know for us, some of you, and I don't know what you've done, but I know if I look back to my past, 
And I know the things that I've done. I can vividly remember these just times of gut-wrenching guilt and distance from God. And when I remember those, a text like this becomes all the more sweet because I know, I know deep within my soul that someone has already come who can fix that. Water will never do it. The placebos of a ritual and religious experience or good works can never get rid of the stain of sin. But Jesus, with a simple touch, eradicates what otherwise would have been impossible to heal. Now, for those of you who've grown up in good homes and you've never really committed any sin that you know of, this doesn't mean much. But for those of you who have blown it and blown it big, rejoice in this, that Jesus can cleanse. Not just leprosy, but sin. Restore you to full purity before God. I mean, that's the way that Christ looks at you. He looks at you and He sees you through the blood of His Son as totally clean and righteous. You're suffocating from the mask of clean image and appearances. But knowing deep down inside that you have a nagging conscience, you need to come to Jesus for healing. You know the frustration of guilt-ridden sleepless nights or the shame of regret-filled mourning. You should come to Jesus. That's why He is here. Nothing else could do that. Only Him. And by the way, I speak to Christians and non-Christians when I say that. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11? through 11? Who's it written to? Christians, right? It's the church at Corinth. And Paul reminds them of this list of sins that they used to do, and he says this, what? As such were some of you, but you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It isn't just the sinner here this morning that needs to understand that he can be cleansed. It is the saved person who still struggles with sin that needs to understand that God has cleansed. That's why Mark says in 1.1, this is the good news. It isn't just superficial. It goes beyond skin deep. So the text conveys this this caliber of hope to the original readers. But Mark adds an interesting note in verse 45. Look at this fallout that happens from this event. Verse 45, but, strong adversative word here, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. Now, the word talk freely is actually the same word that was used earlier to preach the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean this guy was doing a gospel presentation, but remember what the word preach literally means. It means to proclaim loudly. This guy wasn't quiet about it. He's being loud about it, so much to the effect that he spreads the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. Desolate places. This is, we've already seen this word occur like five other times in chapter 1. It's just wilderness. He goes out to the wilderness places... The same place where he went to pray earlier, like thinking that nobody could, could get around him, and people were still coming to him from every quarter. Do you ever wonder why texts like this are in there? I mean, for, for many of us, we would have just kind of like skipped from verse 44 and gone right straight to chapter 2. 
But why is this here? What is going on? It's an apologetic purpose. By apologetic, I mean defending the truth. Mark is showing us that Jesus didn't have like an effective PR campaign. He wasn't a good advertiser. He was trying not to have publicity, and he couldn't help it. So for those who would come along later and say that, oh, well, you know, Jesus was just, he was in the right places at the right times, and he was trying to make himself popular. No, that's not true. He was just trying to preach the word. He wasn't trying to make a spectacle of himself. And yet we know that we still hear of him 2,000 years later because only God could do Good news, or news in general, that's significant and important spreads like wildfire. More to the point, Jesus alone can cleanse from contamination, but that's not, not all He's able to do with our sin problem. He's also able to forgive our transgression. The second ability of Jesus is this. Jesus is able to forgive our transgression. We see this so clearly in this story in verses 1 through 12. Let's jump back in. Look at verses 1 and 2 and see the setting here. And when he returned to Capernaum, that's where he was, right? After some days, presumably he's letting the crowd die down, it was reported that he was at home. Now, what does he mean by home? It just means his home base. He had probably set up his kind of operating base there in Capernaum at Peter's home. And it says that many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So again, Jesus just can't escape the crowds at this point. The people are all packed in. And what I want you to understand is like a, a crowded home in first century. Okay? <laughs> um, the average home in that time, especially from excavations done in Capernaum, uh, dating back to the first century, was 15 feet wide. Can you imagine that? 15 feet wide. This is a small little place. Now, Peter's home presumably was maybe a little larger than that. But the reason why they would only be that wide is because the timbers that they would use to actually construct the roof were only so tall because the trees weren't that tall. So these are small little homes, and it's packed in the home, even to the point that if you wanted to just stand at the door and listen, you couldn't even do that. So get the scene. And also, by the way, notice what Jesus is doing. What does it say? And he was preaching the word to them. Remember, Jesus is staying focused on His priority. He is concerned first and foremost about meeting these spiritual needs. And here's what you need to see, that what starts out as a memorable healing because of the crazy events that happen actually becomes an opportunity for Jesus to showcase His ability to forgive sin. That's what this story is going to be all about. Look at the need in verse 3. It's kind of the opening scene here after you get the setting. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So here you have this paralyzed man. He's laying on this little stretcher, this kind of like, it's kind of like a military stretcher with two sticks and some fabric. And one guy described it this way. The man couldn't walk, he couldn't stand, his limbs were bent, his body twisted. And I like this, a waist-high world walked past as he sat and watched. He's paralyzed. He can't move. And then the guys determined to get him to Jesus actually decide to, to, to do whatever it takes. And they can't bust through the crowd, so what they do is they go along to the steps on the side of the house, and this was just normal architectural design for first century homes. 
steps going up to the roof of the house, and they didn't have pitched roofs, they had flat roofs. And remember I told you that the way they constructed this was by laying down these thicker beams of cedar, presumably, or sycamore, and they would run across one way, right? On top of all the the masonry. And then what they would do is they would put smaller like twigs and branches and that kind of thing the opposite way. And on top of that, they would put mud. So then they would put more sticks and more mud and more sticks and more mud. And so you would presumably have about this thick of like mud. And that's why you see somewhere in Proverbs it talks about like a a leaking roof. (laughs) Anytime it would rain, it would drip right through these homes. Be thankful for the homes you do have. But all that to say is, don't think of like an American home and these guys throwing up a guy on a stretcher on a pitched roof. It's just not that way. They were up there, they were on the top, and basically they had to dig through the roof. The the phrase is, literally, they unroofed the roof. (laughs) And I, I just can't imagine, I mean, we deal with distractions here all the time. Sometimes it's a bird, sometimes it's cars, sometimes it's people walking in, but I have no idea, and I I think I do an okay job at just going through, but I can't imagine what would happen if I saw something beginning to come through the roof right here. And yet that's exactly what happens, and and as much as I want to know what Jesus did, it doesn't say, (laughs) it doesn't tell us what he did, all it says is this. When Jesus, verse 5, saw their faith. When He saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Is, is anybody catching the disconnect here? Why did these guys come? What were, they, what were they trying to get for their friend? Healing. They wanted Him to be healed. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven? Uh, Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. The real problem, or the real reason I'm here, is to be healed. And yet Jesus unpredictably shows that this man has something bigger going on. Now, predictably though, Jesus responds to this guy's faith. We see this all through Mark. Mark 5.34 and 36, and Mark 9.23-24, and Mark 10.52. Every one of these passages, Jesus responds positively to faith. But this response is different. And I, and I want to help you see what's going on here. I want, to, I want you to understand why the, the uh, scribes are going to be so ticked off that Jesus says this particular comment by giving an illustration from our own number. Okay, So I want you to imagine with me that, uh, that Mitch and Ryan and Phil are talking about football. All right? Now, that's not an unusual thing. That could happen. Mitch has been trying to send incriminating texts all weekend. Um, about Ohio State football. So this is a very real conversation that could happen here at this church. Now, just, just to say that um, the conversation gets heated and that Mitch punches Ryan in the mouth. Now, outside of disqualifying him from the eldership, <laughs> uh, we have a, a huge problem. I mean, there's blood everywhere. But Phil's there. And Phil goes up to Mitch. And says, Mitch, I forgive you for punching Ryan in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. Now, what's Ryan going to say after he calms down? Phil, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive if it's against you. You get it? That's why... When Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, 
He's actually saying, your sins were against me and I forgive you. He's doing nothing less than claiming to be God Himself in this passage. There's no getting around it. And that's exactly how they understood it. Look at verse 6. Now the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now remember these scribes? They're these Old Testament experts in Jewish law. And they're they're opposed to this. And the first sign of opposition that we have in the entire book of Mark comes from the religious establishment. And they have every right to be disturbed. Exodus 34, I mean 43, verses 6 and 7, and Isaiah 43, 25 made it clear that only God could forgive sin. And that's what Jesus claimed to do right here. Now, here's the deal. Can I be really sincere with those of you who are here for a moment that may not believe that Jesus is the Messiah or God? Or maybe you know somebody who is? I want you to know that through this statement, Jesus claimed to be God. And, I will say this, Jesus was blaspheming, He was blaspheming, He deserved to be stoned if He made this claim and was not God. I want to concede that this morning, and I hope you would too. If Jesus is not God, do not follow Him. It gets us back to our trilemma from a few weeks ago. He is either a lunatic or he is a liar. Stay away from anybody who says, I am God and have the divine authority to forgive sin if he cannot actually forgive sin. Now the reason I'm bringing this up is because we have people in our world today in in liberal circles, and then also the Muslims themselves would teach that Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm telling you, straight up, understand the passage. He just said it straight out. Only God can forgive sins. He knows what kind of Old Testament culture He's speaking into. And He made that claim, and He could not, or He he better not, make that claim unless He really is God. So how do we know? How do we know if what He said was really true? That's exactly what the guys were asking. That's why Jesus challenges them. The camera switches back to Jesus. Look at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit, which is a miracle in and of itself, by the way, that He knew what they were thinking, that they thus questioned within themselves, He said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and take up your bed and walk? Oh, this is a tough question. Which one is easier? What's Jesus asking here? It's kind of like a paradox. Like, Is it it easier to forgive sin or is it easier to just say that your sins are forgiven? I think what's actually going on here is that Jesus' question here centers around provability. He was going to prove to these men. What's easier to prove? I could say to you that your sins are forgiven but you can't see anything or is it going to be greater proof for you for me to look at this man who cannot walk, has never been able to walk and then heal him? What's the greater proof? And so, Jesus puts everything on the line here and basically says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man, an Old Testament messianic term, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this is, catch what's going on. Who's he talking to? The Pharisees? I mean, excuse me, the scribes? He's talking to the scribes. He's saying so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then notice what Mark does. He said to the paralytic, he switches his attention from the the scribes to the man himself And he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There's a huge failure factor here, right? 
You get what's going on? Basically, Jesus is saying, if I'm God, three impossible things will happen with this man. He will get up, he will pick up his bed, and he will walk on legs that he has never walked on before and go home. So, this is the ultimate succeed or fail. And then, when Jesus says that, verse 12, clarifies whether or not it was a pass or a fail. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I mean, it's almost like somebody saying, and this is just such a poor illustration of this, but somebody saying, I'm the greatest three-point shooter ever, standing by the half-court line and saying, let me prove it, and then just shooting the shot and nailing it. I mean, it's exactly what takes place. He doesn't even continue like the, the playground chatter with these guys. He just gets right to the point. Only God can do what I'm about to do. And then he does it, proving that he had the ability to do what? Not just heal disease. What was he trying to prove? That he could forgive sin. And I love how Mark points out that it was publicly evident. It says, he did this before all. He did this in front of everyone. Jesus claimed to do what only God could do and then backed it up by doing what only God could do. So this is God versus their religious establishment, round one, and God gets the glory. So get the picture. Mark has presented Jesus as the divine Messiah, the one who solves our sin problem, the true priest who's able to solve our sin problem. And we see him meeting man's greatest needs, his deepest needs. And let me finish with this. Hopefully this text shows you that Jesus does not grant us our deepest wish always, but what He does do is meet our deepest need. I came across an article this week from Cynthia Heimel. For those of you who don't know her, she's a liberal feminist, not a Christian by any means. She used to write for The Village Voice in New York. and She had known a number of people who were actors and actresses slavishly working side jobs to try to get through. Charlie, you may remember these types from Los Angeles. (laughs) It seems like everybody that was working at a restaurant was trying to make it in the movies. And so Cynthia remembers her time with these people. She remembers the times that they became famous, the people who actually made it. And when they were struggling, she writes, like all of us, they would only say, if I could make it in the business, if I only had this or that, I'd be happy. And she says they were like so many people. They were stressed. They were driven. They were easily upset. They were just hoping for success. They were hoping for this one thing. And then she pointed out when they actually got the fame that they had been longing for, these are her words, they became insufferable, unstable, angry, manic. Not just arrogant, as you might expect, but worse than that, they were now unhappier than they were before. And then she continues, I pity celebrities. I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They they worked, they pushed. And the morning after, each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose. 
Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened and nothing changed. They were still in them. The, the disillusionment turned them to howling and insufferable people. And she admits that she was sorry for them. But listen to this last line. It's shocking. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, He grants you your deepest wish. You know what Jesus is telling us through this story today? I'm not going to play a rotten joke on you. I'm not just going to heal your body and let you think you've got your deepest wish. Jesus communicates that the solution that you really need is more than skin deep. Can He do the superficial things? Yes, but what He shows in these two passages in particular is that He is able to deal with the deeper problem. He is able to deal with the sin problem. Can He cleanse of extreme disease? Of course! But even more importantly, He can give us access to God and make us pure before Him. Can He give life to dead limbs? Of course! But even more importantly, He grants forgiveness to rebellious sinners. There's a greater priority here. And Mark shows us that Jesus could do the harder thing. What would this look like here? If we understood this at Faith Bible, I propose that we would be an indomitably happy and joyful people. If we understood that our real needs weren't first world problems or superficial things or more money or a better body, but when we understood that our greatest need, the thing that we need more than anything else, our biggest problem has already been fixed. You know That would change people that would come in a place like that. Why are they so happy? I don't get it. They drive normal cars. They work normal jobs. Nobody here is a superstar. And yet they're happy. Why? Eternity settled. Everything's fine. Jesus has fixed it. See, Jesus is able. My question for you is this. Are you willing? The question for us today is not, is Jesus able? We know that. That's clear. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to trust and believe and depend upon this God to meet your greatest need? May I offer three things that I trust that you would believe this week that just I think would practically sum this up? I think this text challenges us to believe that our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is sin. Hear me well, don't ever think that Jesus is not concerned with your marriage or your job or your health or your hurts or your needs or your fears. But you need to know something. First things first, Jesus wants to take care of that which matters most, and that is your sin. One guy said it this way, talking about this paralytic. He says, He may put you on your feet, or He may keep you flat on your back, but He will forgive you. Better for you to lie flat on your back and be forgiven than to dance your way to hell. So true. You've got bigger problems, folks, than just the temporal, the surface. And Jesus has made that, met that greatest problem. Our greatest problem is sin. Secondly, our only solution is Jesus. 
Our greatest problem is sin. Our only solution is Jesus. I'm calling on you to believe that, to depend on that, to trust that this week. Our only solution is Jesus plus nothing. Not, Not Jesus and your religious rituals or your infant baptism or your association with the church or the good things that you do or all the, the books that you've read. It's just Jesus and Jesus alone. Remember that. And I would encourage you to examine yourself for break solutions. What is it that you're looking to in this life more than Jesus to fix the problems of life? And then lastly, our only response is faith. Our, only, our greatest problem is sin. Our only solution is Jesus. And our only response is faith. What do you do in light of this? I, look, I don't have ten action items for you to go out this week. I'm just calling you to depend, to, to trust that this has happened, that this Jesus is the one that you've met. And that He's met the need. I'm calling you to acknowledge something that's already happened. If you're a non-Christian friend here today, but come to Jesus. Just... Depend on Him alone. And if that doesn't make sense, do you hear me say that over and over and over again? Talk to me afterward, please. Talk to a church member, one of the pastors that you've seen leading the service today. We want you to understand that you don't have to depend on anything, but you come to Jesus and He fixes it. And if you're a Christian here today, what's your response? Keep believing. Keep believing. This is the good news. And it has been satisfied in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have met our greatest need. Or you've washed us clean with your blood. You've forgiven us of our transgressions. We were once at odds with you, and now we are right with you. If we are believing in you alone, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the gift of faith. I pray that we would continue to rely on you this week. And if there's people here who do not know you, I pray that they would stop leaning on other things or looking for other solutions, but that they would find remedy and help and repair in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Do this work that only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.